American economist and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman entered the economics profession to follow in the footsteps of Harry Selden, a psychohistorian living on Trantor approximately 10,000 years into the future. Selden, Psychohistory, and Trantor are all from Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, published between 1951 to 53. Selden used the mathematics of human behavior to save civilization, as Krugman put it. Admittedly, economics is a pretty poor substitute, muses Krugman, but I tried, he says. Many would say he's done so very successfully, having been awarded the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences for his contributions to new trade theory and new economic geography. Is he the best psychohistorian alive? Your podcaster does not think so. I mean, they hand out those Nobels like candy, right? And they even have them lying around here somewhere. No, the best is a Hungarian-American George Friedman, the geopolitical strategist. As proof, this podcaster offers his 2009 book titled The Next Hundred Years. Sure, Selden forecasted the next thousand for the galaxy, but still, who on earth is offering an outlook for the next century? In Friedman's book, Japan plays a very prominent role, second only to the United States. In macroeconomics and monetary policy, Japan plays a central role too. It is the scout, recon as Americans call it, Risi to the Commonwealth. The Bank of Japan is about seven years ahead of the main central banking force, and it's waving back to everyone to stay back, don't come this way. Is the warning lost in translation? Is it ignored? Spanish essayist George Santillana famously noted, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. But your podcaster prefers Friedman's quip that studying history has little practical utility in averting past outcomes. We are doomed to repeat history whether we know it or not. Jesus, I don't know what happened to me. Nothing, that was fine as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it was. Hello, everyone. This is the 67th take of my introduction that I'm doing right now. As you can see, I'm sweating. Uh, okay, hello, everyone. Welcome to episode... Hello, everyone. I'm off my game. I need more rum. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 31 of Making Sense. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I am joined by Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. We're going to do a show that's three parts. And in the first part, we're going to talk about the difference between a banking regulator and a central bank and how that it's affecting your economy and your finances. Jeff, good morning. Good morning, Emil. Remember, we're talking about a domestic bank regulator versus a central bank. And the word domestic kind of sounds like, eh, maybe it's not important, but it really means everything, especially in the context of a global monetary system. Absolutely. And we're going to get into that. The you know, people often ask you, what would you do if you were in charge? And uh, people never ask me that question. But if they did ask me that, I would say, well, I would start nominating people that are aware of the euro dollar system. And in your article at Real Clear Markets today on the 16th of October, it's called Bond Yields Are Really Quite Easy to Understand. You introduce us to an individual whose name is Marvin good friend. He was the Trump's nominee to a Federal Reserve board, FOMC board seat back in November of 2017. Uh, and he had a pretty contentious uh, nomination process. It didn't really go anywhere. The, the Senate Banking Committee uh, forwarded his nomination to the floor on a 13 to 12 vote. But, uh, you know, some of the senators kept bringing up some of the things he said, especially, you know, good friend was an inflationist. He was a hawk. He always said, you know, inflation's right around the corner. And, you know, one of the more famous things he said was in 2012, that if, if the unemployment ever, uh, unemployment rate ever got below 7%, watch out, it was going to be like the 1970s again. So he had constantly advocated for tight money policy year after year after year after year, which you can, ima you can imagine that uh, the opposition party in the Senate used to great effect in his nomination process. So even though his, his nomination was forwarded to, full to the full Senate floor, it was never acted on. He never even got a vote, and it just quietly went, went away. 
There's a quote from Senator Elizabeth Warren, quote, and she's speaking to Goodfriend, these wrong predictions are not outliers for you. And she also said, we can't take a chance on someone with a decades-long record of prioritizing hypothetical inflation over real people losing their jobs. Jeff, which predictions were was Senator Warren referring to? I guess you just explained All it to them, us. Right? I, you know, that's the thing. Good Friends nomination, what he was saying was really no different than anybody else at the Fed. They keep saying, you keep seeing and predicting and forecasting this breakout of inflation. And, and you know, the lower the unemployment rate goes, the more confident they are this inflation thing's going to happen. And of course, you know, in a, in a political setting like this, they're just setting themselves up to be bashed over the head with their own words. But yet, why does it only play out in in this one you know political arena? Why are we? Why are these uh, these central bankers and economists only made to account when it's a political thing? Why isn't the public asking the same questions? Not just of Marvin Goodfriend, who by the way passed away late late last year, but all Fed officials. They keep saying these things. Their predictions, you know, these bad predictions, as Senator Warren said, are not outliers. They are the base case, and so. Why, why is that the case? Why is it the case that they keep getting this inflation thing wrong, which is central to what a central bank is supposed to do? And that's really the overriding point here. What I, always, what I say a lot is that you know, a central bank is not central, and it's really just trying to play on words. What I actually mean is something beyond that. Um, and, and the reason I say a central bank is not central and don't go further most of the time is because you often lose people when you say that. People who are already skeptical because they see this, you know, central bank is everywhere. It's ubiquitous. It's in all our education. It's on TV. It's everywhere. And if you say to somebody who's not, not familiar with your argument that a central bank's not central, they already think you're crazy. And so if you, you can't really tell them the real thing, which is, oh, by the way, the central bank isn't central because it's not even a central bank. And then, you know, forget it. You're going to just lose everybody at that point. But that's really what, we're made, what, we're made, what we mean when we say this, is that the central bank, the Federal Reserve, ECB, whatever it is, they don't really perform the role that we all think of when we think of a central bank. And that's really the key here. And when you look at Marvin Goodfriend's history and his career, you can start to see what we're really talking about. Because Goodfriend was a guy who was a researcher. He was a researcher at the Richmond Fed going way, way back into the great inflation. And so, you know, the fact that he came up during the great inflation obviously has colored his view of everything. But still, he was a guy who was thorough. He was very, you know, studious. He was also, uh, you know, he was very dependable in doing all this research at the Federal Reserve, or at least at the Richmond branch. And one of the things he was very good about was, hey, there's this enormous, gigantic euro dollar market out there, and I think you know maybe we should pay attention to it. That's right. We're going to talk about the great inflation in a later part of this episode, but the great inflation was during the 1970s primarily. Let's move to and what was behind that great inflation? As you said, good friend was researching the what he called the euro currency market, and you quote him from an article or a report of his. And I want to go through his quote just to explain it to people. It's going to be kind of a rapid fire questions to you. And then if you can give an overview of the main message of this quote and why he included it. So in 1981, he wrote, quote, as of mid-1980, Morgan Guarantee estimated the gross size of the euro currency market to be at $1.31 trillion. So euro currency, Jeff, here, does that mean dollars, pounds, francs, marks that are held outside of their respective countries? Yes. Remember the term euro before a currency just means offshore. In the okay. offshore market, which is primarily euro dollars, but you know, when, I, when we refer to the euro dollar market, we're really referring to this offshore currency market that can be in any kind of denomination. It's a bank-centered market that uh, exist outside of national boundaries and regulatory structures. And then he continues and he says, the net size was put at 670 billion. What does that mean, the net size? Well, the, what we're, you know, a lot of times because of the complex accounting and because a lot of this, this shadow stuff, you know, there's the potential for double counting things. And so central bankers in particular are always on the lookout for, you know, we don't want to double count, we want to estimate the size of something and so if it's an interbank transfer, for example, is that new money? Is it the same money moving around? 
all these other things. Long story short, what happens is a general rule in these cases is that in the academic literature and in the official circles, if an American bank holds a euro dollar asset or liability or whatever, whatever they're looking at, it's netted out because there's a theoretical belief, supposition, that American banks don't create these dollars outside the U.S. They're, they're exclusively a borrower of something else that's created on their behalf. So American bank holdings, by and large, are netted out, leaving mostly non-bank participants. It sounds like you're saying there's a legitimate reason to net it out, but you're also saying maybe not. The, the both there's answers- a legitimate reason if you believe in the, the idea that American banks don't create dollars outside the U.S., which I believe is absolutely false. Yeah, illegitimate. It's funny because, you know, we're talking about estimates that were provided by Morgan Guarantee, not the Federal Reserve. And that's, you know, that's an important point. Here we have a researcher at the Richmond Fed, a very good researcher at Richmond Fed, who in, in one sense is saying, look, I have to go outside of the central bank just to get these estimates. And Morgan Guarantees is a, one of the few banks anywhere that was interested in the euro dollar market and took the time and effort to go after these statistics. And remember, you know, even Milton Friedman's one time he talked about the euro dollar, the euro dollar market in the early 70s, the euro dollar first principles, that was, that was reprinted from a speech he gave at Morgan Guarantee. So Morgan Guarantee, more than anybody back at that time period, was almost exclusively interested in this monetary system. And they kept estimating, you know, kept trying to figure out how do we estimate this. And what they came up with in 1980 was the thing that it was more than a trillion. I mean, 1980, a trillion dollars was an impossibly big number. I mean, that was beyond all comprehension. And here we have this one, this offshore currency market that's already two-thirds the size of the, the entire domestic monetary system, and only this one bank is even trying to estimate it. That's right. That Morgan Guarantee reference with uh, Milton Friedman was 1969, and he estimated at that time that it was $30 billion big, 1969. And right now we're at 1981, and we're thinking $1.3 Let me continue with the quote. He says, M2 is the narrowest United States monetary aggregate that includes Eurodollar deposits. M2 includes overnight Eurodollar deposits held by the United States non-bank residents at Caribbean branches of Federal Reserve member banks. A little bit confusing. So if I understand, M2 includes dollars held by U.S. citizens and businesses that are not banks in the Caribbean. True? Yeah, that's the old version of M2. That part was moved into M3. Uh, don't ask me the date, but <laughs> at the time, that part of the euro dollar, that small part of segment of the euro dollar system was included in M2. But again, it was re- it, the idea of including it in the quote was to reinforce the message that this is an offshore thing that doesn't really impact the U.S. If you don't pay attention to the vast majority of it. <laughs> and then he continues, as of June 1980, M2 measured... One billion, one tr- one thousand five hundred eighty-seven billion, and that euro-dollar component was only two point nine billion. So M two money in the USA was one point five eight seven trillion, and only a tiny sliver of that was U.S. dollars offshores held by U.S. citizen people businesses. Is that right? Yeah, and so the rest of the 1.3 trillion in the euro currency market is separate and distinct. And I guess that's the big picture that we're trying to get away. He's because, but then you note that at the time, M3, which is the largest measure of money that was in place at that time, that that well, was, actually, M3 was the second broad. There was something called L, which was okay. supposedly most comprehensive, but that fell out of favor even too. So M3 was the most common broad money definition. And that number was 1.85 trillion. Jeff, does the 1.85 trillion, is that inclusive of the 1.5 M2 number? Yes. Okay, so $1.85 trillion M3 in the United States versus 1.3 trillion offshore outside of the United States. That's not under the Federal Reserve's purview. Is that the big picture message? Not only is it not under the Federal Reserve purview, they don't even care enough to measure it or study it or do any monitoring about it. It's left to individual banks like Morgan Guarantee to do something like this. 
So you're already, you can already appreciate the dichotomy disconnect here, right? We have this offshore monetary system that's enormous. And it started out from practically nothing, as you pointed out, Emil. You know, I think the Morgan Guarantee's best estimates going, uh, going backwards, they thought maybe at, 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 at most it was about $50 billion in the early 60s. I know Milton Friedman said $30 billion in the late 60s, but Morgan Guarantee later said, you know, there's more to it because there's always more to it. And so we go from practically nothing to multiple trillions all during this great inflationary period, which is somehow inflationary, right? And the Federal Reserve says, well, it's, it's outside the U.S. We don't care. And, this, and it's not just about the, the stock, but it's about the rate of change. And I remember a 1979 uh, article by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, the winter 1979-80 quarterly review, which I was a couple years old at the time, and I read it. Sure, it was good. Let me quote it. The euro markets grew rapidly during the 1970s. All the measures of the euro market size increased at annual rates of above 25%. By comparison, a broad measure of the United States money supply that includes large negotiable certificates of deposits and time deposits grew at an annual rate of 10% between 1970 and mid-1979, as did a broad measure of German money supply. This money that was two-thirds as big in 1980 was growing at two and a half times the rate of the official money. But nobody cares, right? This is all offshore. It doesn't matter. We're a central bank, right? We're a central bank that, that looks at half the monetary system and thinks, ah, not important. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's the idea here. The Fed is supposed to be a central, you know, is the Fed supposedly in charge of the money system? Or is the Fed really in charge of the banking system? And you think those two things are the same thing, but they're really not. And when you get down into the details, you can start to see not only that it's the case, the Fed is not a central bank. It's also the case that this really, really matters. Let me read a remarkable quote that I'm not quite sure what to do with. Let me read it here. What's the problem? Why hasn't the Fed done a better job? I am going to argue today that one reason, and maybe the main reason, is that the Fed does not now have, and it never has had, a clear congressional mandate to stabilize the price level. Consequently, the Fed's successes in stabilizing the price level in at least some periods of its history has been and continues to be a function largely of one, prevailing general economic conditions, two, the strength of the Federal Reserve's leaders, and three, old-fashioned luck. What, who, why, when? Well, first of all, that was Al Broadus. <laughs> and believe me, we double-checked. We triple-checked that it was Al this time. And it wasn't just Al Broadus, the president of the Richmond Fed, back in, I think it was 1991 or two, or early 90s sometime. It was also Al Broadus with the support of Marvin Goodfriend who wrote this, uh, I believe it was an article published in, well, at least it's, it's published now at the Minneapolis Fed. What they were saying is something I think people don't appreciate. Al was admitting, along with Marvin, saying that, listen, the, Fed's, the Fed throughout its history has absolutely sucked. This modern idea that the Fed is a group of technocratically wise stewards who do all sorts of amazing things that can control markets and economies at the flip of a switch that's a fairly recent invention. Through much of its history, the Federal Reserve has been one awful institution that just screws up time and time and time again. And what Alan Marvin were saying in the early 90s was, the few times that it got things right, we really don't know why. <laughs> you know, the Fed, here are these Fed guys saying, we struggle to explain why the good times are actually good. And yet, in the modern view, the, green, the post-Greenspan era was supposed to attribute any good time to um, you know, the Federal Reserve's action. When really, again, throughout its history, the Federal Reserve has an awful history. It doesn't, it doesn't even know why, when things are going good, that it, they're going good and has no idea what it was doing. So what Al was saying is like, maybe it's Congress's fault. <laughs> we haven't given us a clear mandate. Jeff, when one reads these technical reports by monetary technocrats, they're filled with jargon, technocratic words, and it's very hard to understand. So when you come across a phrase like willy-nilly or good luck, you know, it lodges in my mind and I remember it. And this mention of good luck is not the only one 
what's the other uh, important message or important reference to good luck in recent Federal Reserve history? You're right. You know, Emil, you're right. It runs contrary to the narrative or the idea that we have of a central bank being this scientific institution that can do all of these things in a scientific fashion. And you stop and you think, good luck. What the hell does good luck have to do with a central bank? Yet that phrase repeats constantly throughout the literature because, again, these guys have no idea how to even explain the good times, let alone the bad. The screw. We haven't even get to the bad times yet. And the, the, the phrase random good luck was used again in, in 2003 by a couple of economists from Princeton. Uh, I think they're both Princeton. Uh, James, Mark Watson, and J- James Watson. What is the stock in Watson? Uh, <laughs> they were the ones who coined the phrase great moderation. And the reason they did coin the phrase great moderation was because that, that period in time, really from the time of Al Broadus in, in the early 90s until the you know, early 2000s, was an isolated case where things were going right. Again, that was outside of normal experience, especially for the Federal Reserve. Things seemed to be stable, not just uh, prices, but also the economy globally. And what they were saying is, we don't know why. We have no idea why that was the case. We have some ideas. You know, this cult of personality around the Federal Reserve chairman, therefore doing signaling, expectations management, all these other things. But by and large, we attribute it like Broadus and Goodfriend had done a decade before to random good fortune, good luck. That's not the that's not the picture the Federal Reserve presents in public because again, it's supposed to be a technocratic scientific institution rather than flying by the seat of its pants. And that's really the point of going back through Goodfriend's history was that when exploring the euro dollar system, he's saying there's this massive thing out there that we don't care about, we don't measure, we don't we don't really factor, and yet. Maybe that's the good luck. Maybe that's the thing that has made it look like we are wise monetary stewards because we're riding this euro dollars coattails. And I think, you know, if you have the if you have the numbers from 1988, Morgan Guarantees updated numbers, you can start to see what we're talking about. Because remember, back in 1980, it was like 1.3 trillion, the, the, the full currency market. By the time you get to 1988, What's the uh, what's the exact figure, Emil? Do you have it in front of you? I do not have it. I thought it was one point eight trillion. Let me. I can pull it up here. Yeah, it was. A, it was. It was. A, I think it was more than that, and it was much, much bigger. In nineteen eighty eight, Morgan Guarantee, by the way, stopped tabulating these euro dollar estimates, and the reason they stopped tabulating their euro dollar estimates is because they couldn't. They could no longer. It had gotten not just quantitatively bigger, but also qualitatively. All sorts of financial innovation took place during the 80s, especially talking about interest rate swaps, currency swaps, and also other forms of derivatives that made it technically impossible, at least within the limited budget or limited expenses that Morgan Guarantee could, 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 could uh, provide for this kind of an effort. So at 1988, they said, look, man, this thing is huge already, and we can't keep track of it. And it so was, you would think. It was $4.6 trillion, yes. and if you net it, then it was $2.6 trillion. So here we go from well, in the gross amount was $1.3 roughly in 1980 to 1980, $4. something trillion, which, by the way, as good friend noted in the early 90s, that number in 1988 was already larger than M2 was in 1991. So the euro currency market in, throughout the 1980s had surpassed the domestic monetary system, which was growing at a relatively good pace on its own. So we have massive offshore money going on, and yet these guys at the Fed are saying, well, it's all just good luck. No, it's not good luck. It's You guys are only paying attention to what you want to pay attention to, and you're riding the coattails of monetary growth you don't factor and you don't, you don't, you don't care about, and that's creating all of this, you know, global economic activity, globalization, stable money supply, stable, um, stable economic conditions, stable prices around the world, except for credit bubbles, obviously. And yet the Fed is trying to create this idea that it's all just good luck or it's monetary policy or it's Alan Greenspan moving the federal funds rate, an unimportant domestic money rate around a quarter point here or there. And then, of course, we get to 2007, 2008. And what happens? The good luck runs out, which means the euro dollar stopped running out. And what that meant as far as the Fed is concerned is nothing more than everything returning back to normal. The Fed throughout its most of its history has absolutely sucked. 
it does not do a good job as a central bank. And the reason it hasn't in the euro dollar era is because it's not a central bank. It is a domestic bank regulator. I remember George Friedman, the geopolitical strategist, once saying that Americans have very low opinions of their leaders, and therefore they're rarely disappointed. And that would be applicable in our case with our central bank if our economics professors, our business executives, the financial media saw the central bank as a domestic banking regulatory authority and not in charge of modern money supply. As we've been talking about, they don't care what's going on beyond the borders. There was a regulator from the Federal Reserve, Mr. Corliss, that spoke this week. What did Randall Corliss, supervisor of banks, say to, uh, to the media this week? He said, everything is great. We've got everything well under control, except for these money markets we can't seem to get under control. <laughs> you know, it's a, apart from that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? <laughs> you know, it's, it's no, it, it, look, when you're a domestic bank regulator, what Quarles is saying is that, look, you know, we haven't had a repeat of Lehman Brothers, even though what happened in March was severe, severe strains across the world, but no banks failed. So obviously we've done our job. As a domestic bank regulator, that makes perfect sense because the banking system today is nothing like what it was back in 2008. The question we have, and we should ask that he will never will, is that, does that really mean anything? Does that really make a difference? The fact that the domestic banking system is hunkered down in their own bunker is actually a symptom of the problem. And it didn't take regulations to do that because they already started doing that as early as August 2007. So the banks don't take risks anymore. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, from the perspective of the Fed as a domestic banking regulator, it's a good thing because banks aren't risky anymore. And so we're not going to see bank failures, which is, by the way, I've said all along, I don't think we're going to see bank failures anymore because banks are fine, especially domestic banks. But that doesn't mean everything is fine. And that was the other part of his speech, which was, you know, these short-term markets, these money markets that are, you know, kind of weird, we struggle to explain, we don't really pay much attention to, they don't seem to be fixed at all. So the bank, domestic banks are good, but these dollar markets that, you know, we know go outside the United States to these massive, huge numbers, they don't seem to be fixed. And so which one do we really care about moving forward? Quarles says, ah, domestic banks are great, nothing to worry about, inflation future down the road. But yet, if you, were, if you were taking Marvin Goodfriend's work and extrapolating that forward, you would think he's counting on random good luck yet again, when we've had nothing but, quote unquote, bad luck since August of 2007. Corliss's speech is going to be linked in the show notes, as well as my phone number, if anyone's looking for a good time. Jeff, we're going to move on to the next section, next section of our uh, presentation. Ah, ah, God, so, <laughs> I'm sorry, Jeff. All right, Jeff, the uh, Corliss's presentation is linked in the show notes, and I don't know where I'm at. Let me drink some <laughs> stiff whiskey. More, drink more. Okay. I don't know what happened. I had a great run this morning. I was on top of the world. I loved your articles this week. I was so excited to do the show. And then for some reason, as soon as the show started, I'm off. I'm leaning on my crutch that I can, I don't have to be on because I can, uh, you know, it's not a live show. I don't know what's wrong with me right now. All right. Let me continue. I think it's fairly common. It's, you know, you, it's easy to do it in practice. And then when the game throws up, it's human nature. You just tense up. You, you know, yes. you start thinking about things you shouldn't be thinking about. I know. I felt so good, though. I felt so good. I don't know why. Uh, so. Mr. Corliss's speech is linked in the show notes as well as my phone number in case anyone's looking for a good time. All right, let's transition to our next article, Jeff, and it's going to be from Alhambra Investments. He posted it on October 13th, and the title is Inflation Expectations is Anything But Confusing. And what we're going to try to get across to the audience today is that there are legitimate benchmark ways of measuring inflation expectations despite what you may hear to the contrary from the Federal Reserve or from the financial press. 
And remember, you know, start, starting out here, going forward, that inflation expectations in a monetary policy setting, at least the current monetary policy setting, they are everything. They don't believe in money supply anymore because they don't know what money is, as we talked about in the last segment. They don't even pay attention to most of the money monetary system. So there's no money in money monetary policy anymore. It's therefore defined entirely by inflation expectations, which, I mean, if you believe that, then as a central bank, or at least what we're told is a central bank, which is actually domestic bank authority, but it said if, if it's a central bank, then under inflation expectations paradigm, your entire focus is on influencing expectations, not actual inflation, but forward expectations. And so that that creates a problem for you because how do you know what inflation expectations are? It's not something that you have, you know, do you conduct focus groups? Do you, do you have polls, surveys? How do, what are inflation expectations? And it's, it's a central question to the modern central bank because it's not a central bank. Well, the good news is that we can look back in history and not too far back in history and see a similar moment to the present. And you do that, you start out by taking us back to 2012 and 2013. Jeff, just remind us what was happening. There was a taper, QE3, QE4, U.S. Treasuries, inflation, the bond route, the repo market. What was happening? There's a lot about late 2012 and 2013 that show up in a lot of different things. It's an extremely important time period, and I think it's one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted time periods, too, because, again, you know, the conventional narrative is something other than what the evidence says. Back then, you got to remember, QE3 began in September, or at least it was announced in September of 2012, started running in October, and then that didn't really work as well. We had all sorts of repo problems late in the uh, monetary problems, repo problems, those kinds of things late in 2012. And then in uh, December of 2012, they went to, it wasn't called QE4, but it actually is a fourth iteration of QE where the Fed started buying treasuries again because it didn't seem to be working. So early 2013, we have questionable economic circumstances. Europe is in recession. The global economy seems to be falling off. Is, it, is everything going to recover? The Fed says, yes, everything's great. We're doing two QEs as one. The Fed's balance sheet is expanding at a pace it had never expanded before. Rapid money printing, ultra accommodative, ultra loose, all the financial press uniformly in saying this is, this is reckless money printing. This is, this is unbelievably powerful stuff. And yet in February 2013, market-based measures of inflation expectations begin to drop. They drop from a high level, one of the highest levels on record, of course, but they begin to fall. And, you know, looking at it from an overview, they've only gone downhill ever since. So why was February 2013 kind of the top in inflation expectations, market-based inflation expectations? That's really the question. Jeff, the star of the show is going to be the Treasury Inflation Protected Security and the break-evens and the market-based inflation expectations. But you mentioned repurchase agreements in, in your explanation there and that there were fails in the repurchase agreement market. And the repurchase agreement market is uh, where banks or I would think financial institutions go to acquire short-term funding and they put up collateral for that short-term funding, primarily U.S. treasuries, but they can put up other assets as well. So Jeff, there were repo fails taking place at that time. Why? Yeah, there was not just repo fails, not just that. There was all sorts of weird indications and warnings from the repo market. For example, there were several times when uh, general collateral rates or you know, uh, specific collateral rates would go way down. They would, uh, these particular securities in the repo market, particular pieces of treasury collateral, would trade wicked special, right down to the fails penalty, which is, you know, which is a, supposed to be a floor where uh, you know fail, it's supposed to prevent fails. Rather than getting into that, we'll, we'll set that one aside. Anyway, there's a lot of stuff going on in the repo market in early 2013, and the general sense of it was that, damn, here we go again. This stuff keeps happening. We have all of these massive money printing QEs, bank reserves going, you know, the level of bank reserves flying upward, yet we keep having these illiquid disruptive problems in the central location of, as you pointed out, you know, it's not just short-term funding, it's 
banks go into, into these markets and financial firms go into these markets for short-term funding, but they roll it over day after day after day. So yes, it's short-term funding, but it's short-term funding that these financial participants use over the long run. And the reason that's a problem is because if you're, if you're rolling over funding day after day after day using certain collateral, and tomorrow all of a sudden the collateral you've been using is hard to come by or it's not, it's not negotiable, you have a big problem because you're depending upon rolling over funding day after day after day, and the day comes where it becomes more difficult, what happens? Well, you start changing your behavior because you're looking at these, these liquidity and monetary risks as impeding your own survival. They disrupting your business, but you have to change the way you do things. And the way you change the way financial firms change the way they do things is very deflationary, not inflationary. They take less risk, not more risk. So we have this, this, this disconnect. Again, QE3, QE4 going full throttle. And at the same time, repo market disruptions that the market itself began to say, this is deflationary. And by the way, we've seen this many times before. It's not getting fixed. So maybe this is, this is something that never will get fixed. Let me show everyone a graph of just what you said so they can imagine that visually. They'll be seeing the private banking system going in the other direction. It's getting deflationary. While at the same time, what are we seeing from the central bank? I thought this was an amazing graph. Yeah, at the same time that the Fed's going nuts, right? It's the money printing, ultra accommodation, ultra loose monetary policy, yet inflation expectations begin to drop considerably because of all, largely because of all, not just the repo, but other things, but largely because of these repo collateral problems, which by the way, quantitative easing as it itself makes worse because QE, especially in this period uh, between February and I believe June, even before February, between the, implement, the start of QE4 in late 2012 and around June 2013, the Federal Reserve was buying on-the-run treasuries. It was taking the best collateral out of the marketplace, it's just, as it, just as it had done before buying treasury bills in QE2, for example. So the Fed is removing the best collateral. It's starting to create all of these enormous problems in the repo market, noticeable problems that banks understood would create deflationary behavior going forward. And the fact that this is, it's 2013, you know, four and a half years after the crisis, and we're still seeing these problems, they started to get the message that this thing would never be not a problem. The QE isn't going to do anything. Bank reserves don't really help. And repo and collateral and the dollar system as a whole, all that stuff, that the trillions that take place outside what the Fed cares about, this stuff is going to be a consistent problem. So from that time period forward, Market-based measures of inflation expectations have, not, not in a straight line, but over time, they've been downhill. Market-based inflation expectations warned us something was wrong. And yet, there's a problem, Jeff, because according to a very recent Bloomberg article, it's not quite clear where people should look to for inflation expectations. And here, let me read a quote. The Federal Reserve, this is from Bloomberg article, the Federal Reserve is determined to push inflation higher from levels it considers dangerously low. For that to happen, it must first convince everyone that prices will accelerate in the coming years. One big problem is that measures that bond traders and strategists rely on for longer-run inflation expectations can often give conflicting and confusing signals, Jeff. No one can agree on how to best or use to use or decipher them with even the Fed seemingly reticent to narrow it down. Jeff, what's yeah, going I mean, on? It's, it's not conflicting or confusing. We both agree about that. I mean, it, there's no conflict or confusion here. There's only a conflict if you believe in the Fed. And remember, the, what the article, the first part of the, the quote you just read is absolutely correct. The Fed has to try to make you believe inflation's coming because inflation is dangerously low. And remember, we're not really talking about consumer prices here. That's not the issue. Consumer low levels of inflation are usually, usually correspond with low levels of economic growth which we cannot afford right now. We need, we need rapid economic growth. And so inflation in a lot of ways is a check on our assumptions. If we believe inflation is going to happen a year from now, that's a good thing, you know, because the economy is roaring its way back. It's going back. It's coming back so fast. It's going to create excesses and that's excess is going to show up in consumer prices. 
So the Fed has to convince us that because everything's bad right now, that things are going to be good next year. And the way they convince us is what? By more quantitative easing. And so the market-based uh, measures of inflation expectation are saying, no, we've seen this before. This QE stuff doesn't work. We're not convinced by it. So there is no confusion except if you believe in QE, which, by the way, is the vast majority of the population, I believe, because most people just take whatever Jay Powell says at his word. Because Why wouldn't they? They've been brought up to believe the Federal Reserve is a central bank, not a domestic bank regulator. And even if they do realize it's a domestic bank regulator, I don't think people understand the difference. And on top of that, they don't ever hear about, I mean, the, the term euro dollar is, I don't think many people have ever even heard of it, let alone understand what it is. So they don't even know that there's this, this massive monetary system out there that they should be paying attention to that central bankers don't even pay attention to. And so the confusion comes in from, if you're they're looking at these things from the mainstream conventional perspective, yeah, these low inflation expectations seem to be confusing because they're telling you that they, what you don't want to, what you're not supposed to believe. The market is saying, this QE stuff, bank reserves, all this money printing crap, it is crap. We don't buy it. We're not buying it. We're literally not buying it. If you put the earth at the center of the solar system, then the path of the planets is confusing. Jeff, the same day that you wrote your article, the uh, Consumer Price Index for the United States was released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics for the month of September. They talked about the overall rate edging up to 1.4%. From in September from 1.3% in August. I guess that's, that's good. That's inflationary. But core consumer prices, the news wasn't that good there for the Fed's inflationary uh, push. Yeah, most of the headline inflation is due to oil prices. Well, not really oil prices, but oil prices as it flows through gasoline and other energy stuff. And so, you know, a lot of times you look at the core rates because oil can be noisy at times. It's, it's all over the place. When you look at some of the core rates, not only did they stumble in September, they stumbled at a level that is already amongst the lowest in the series. So we're not seeing the types of deep-seated inflation pressures that would be consistent with the idea the Fed has created this drastically inflationary future. So we have inflation expectations that are likewise, even though they've come up from March, they remain, I think, when I ran the numbers, it's the 12th percentile. Tips, uh, whether it's the five-year, five-year, four, the five-year break-even, or the 10-year break-even, they're all around the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th percentile, which means 87% of the time or more, inflation expectations have been higher. And that, I mean, again, the disconnect, right? All this money printing, massive balance sheet expansion, markets are saying, we don't buy this inflation story. And then the CPI comes along and reinforces the message because it shows Yes, there are no inflation pressures. In fact, what we're looking at is more uh, in balance disinflationary pressures of the kind that you know reminded such particularly market participants of early 2013. Rapid growth in the Fed's balance sheet, but yet not it's not turning out the way it's supposed to. And market participants are not the only ones who are not buying it. Consumers seem to not be buying it as well. The same day that the CPI was released, the Federal Reserve Branch of uh, New York released its consumer survey for the month of September. And normally, you know, it doesn't matter what one particular month is, but September followed August's big announcement with all the fancy press clippings and the media campaign to tell everyone that the Federal Reserve was going to let inflation run pure. What do consumers think of that? Well, the results showed that the median three-year-ahead expected inflation rate decreased by 24 basis points from August to 2.74%. And that corroborates the earlier survey for the month of September by the University of Michigan. That one showed that the five-year at ahead expected inflation rate decreased by 10 basis points to 2.6 and the one year ahead decreased by 40 basis points to 2.7 percent yeah those are big those are big moves right i mean 40 basis points for the one year michigan is, is a big move as is the 24 basis points for the frbny number these are not small declines and there, again, the time period matters, right? And you, you pointed it out exactly. The Fed, Jay Powell made this big 
big deal about average inflation targeting. We're doing massive QE. We're raising our level of what will allow inflation to get to. That's what the central bank is saying. We're doing massive money printing, and we're going to let it run as hot as it can possibly get. Yet consumers kind of just went, eh, as did the markets. The markets kind of went, eh. You look at nominal treasury yields, eh. Nobody is buying the inflation story because it's a boring, predictable story that's, a, that's all fiction. It's not a real story. Jeff, the, since 2018, if you take a look at the, uh, the inflation break-even for the 10-year Treasury bond, you would see that after each policy proposal, the inflation expect that the Federal Reserve or policy pivot, inflation expectations started to move up. As you often said, they kind of were exploring the possibility. But then after every, what would the word be? Every transitory issue that kept coming up and every obstacle that showed up, we would see a ratcheting down of that inflation expectations. And since March, inflation expectations have been heading up until August 31st, the Monday after the uh, big policy proposal announcement. Ever since then, inflation expectations, the break-even the, from the 10-year U.S. Treasury has been flatlined. We saw an inflection just like we have before, and it had ratcheted down from the previous level since 2018. Yeah, I think that average inflation target was for any honest and unbiased uh, market observer, or even just an, you know any any observer whatsoever. The uh, what Jay Powell announced at the virtual conference in Jackson Hole in late August was a tremendous disappointment because you know they made this huge deal out of it. And most people probably weren't aware of it, but I mean, going back to December of 2018, for a year and a half they put a tremendous amount of time and effort into it. And they made it sound like this was, you know, hey, we're being honest here. We're going to pull everything apart and look under every rock and see what, what, what can we do to improve. And I think they set themselves up for failure because they were, they were, they were setting the expectation that this was going to be a really good thing. Again, always expectations. This was going to be really good. And the market thought, okay, after 12 years of QE or so, they're going to come up with something different. And something different might work. That's always the formula, right? If we do something different, Different has a chance to work, whereas same has absolutely no chance of working. And instead, Jay Powell announces his average inflation target, and you could just hear the air go out of all the balloons because it wasn't anything different. I mean, go back to forward guidance and symmetrical target and all the, It's the same damn thing. And on top of it, it's, it's not just average inflation target. It's average inflation target, which depends upon more QE as its background. And it's just the market went, huh? You know, this was supposed to be great, and this is this is what your big idea was. And the, instead, which, what you realize is they don't have any ideas; they're out of ideas, and that's that's really that's disappointing. And in, in one sense, in terms of expectations, it's disinflationary itself. You know what? What they need is not just more QE, but more QQE, which is what we're going to be discussing right now in part three. Everyone else, if uh, you're enjoying this work, you can find Jeff Snyder on Twitter at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. He writes at Real Clear Markets once a week. And you can also see him and his posts daily at the Alhambra Investments blog roll. Jeff, our final section, the, the whole show has been about kind of looking back in history for lessons that can be applied to the present because we keep repeating the same mistakes over and over and the good news, I guess, for the rest of the world is that Japan went first. There's a lot of talk right now about stimulus, about the fiscal arm, the fiscal arm joining the monetary arm and pushing forward and implementing new policies and that there's going to be some sort of recovery because there's going to be a massive spending bill coming perhaps after the election. And we can look to Japan in 2012, 2013 when QQE was being introduced. So can you set the yeah, stage for us? Yeah, everything that you just said, right, Emil, is well, there's a word for it. It's called Abenomics. You know, Shinzo Abe, who became prime minister in late 2012, introduced this concept, which was, by the way, consulting with Paul Krugman and his, his, his central thesis, which is, again, credibly promised to be irresponsible. The Bank of Japan has done it. If, if the U.S. Federal Reserve and the U.S. government is following an economic plan, you can bet dollars to donuts 
that the Japanese have already done it. And usually, and this is the weird, eerie thing, all you have to do is go back seven years. So if you go back seven years, you'll probably see the Japanese did the same thing that we're about to take, take place. That happened. QE1 was in 2001 in Japan, and QE1 in the United States, guess what? Seven years later in 2008. So here we have a combination in 2020. The Fed is going to raise its inflation target. That's what average inflation target is. What they're saying is that the short-run inflation target for the Fed is no, no longer a target. They're just going to let it go hot. So they've raised their inflation target at the same time they're doing massive money printing in this massive ir irresponsible QE, which, again, is exactly what happened in early 2013. Again, that time period, early 2013, in Japan. Japan announced in January of 2013 they were going to raise their explicit inflation target to 2%. They were that confident in themselves. They had a 1% target. We're going to make it 2% because we believe this. And then in April 2013 was the big one, the QQE, the massive money printing, the beyond any kind of irresponsibility. And that was because, and if you want to, if you want to join us, you can read this article. It's uh, October 14th, posted at Humber Investments. And the title that you want to look for is, you need to understand what's really behind this new V. And once again, Japan is more than helpful. Jeff. So they, they propose this solution called QQE because the problem isn't the central bank's competence, right? The problem is they're omnipotent. That's what the public believes, that they'll step in. They're always in control, and they'll step in and fix any inflation. So they wanted to show everybody QQE. We promise we're going to go nuts. We're going to spend everything. It was all over the news, even here in the United States. I was reading it in The Economist, Abenomics, The Three Arrows. It was a big deal. Everybody knew that the government was going to spend more money than anyone had ever imagined before. And for a long time, this was a long-term project. You provide some statistics. How many times did inflation breach their target in the 91 months after, after, uh, after, what was it, the QQ, no, QQE started 88 months in. So what was it that started 91 months? The inflation, the inflation target. target. Yeah, the 2% target, since they raised their 2% target in January of 2012, so February 2012 forward, they reached that 2% target on the CPI, the headline CPI, exactly once. And Not that, counting is, the VAT tax effect. There was some inflation in 2014 that was attributable to the tax hike. But if you back that out, the, the underlying CPI reached, just reached 2%, not stayed above 2%, which is what a target's supposed to be, to be around 2 just reached it in one month out of 91. Jeff, I'm, a, I'm not a baseball that, fan, but even I know that if you're below 50%, you can still be successful in baseball at hitting. Uh, is one out of 91, does that qualify as a success in monetary policy? In I your don't professional opinion, so. right? Because I mean, it's again, it's not. We're not supposed to hit the target once. We're supposed to hit it. It's supposed to be a target at month after month, sustained levels. And the funny thing is, if you look at Japanese inflation, they would have had trouble even reaching the one percent target at in in most months. The vast majority of the time, I didn't go back and, and count the number of months they'd reached it, but they were so few, they would have even failed at their one percent target. And so. What did QQE plus raising the inflation target actually accomplish? I mean, I, I, it accomplished what it was supposed to in technical terms, which was not money printing, by the way. The technical toolkit is, as you pointed out already, Emil, it got the financial media globally to write all of these stories about how this was massive money printing, ultra, you know, all the words that, they, that the financial press always uses. That happened. But what we see again, yet again, is that so what? You, you know, trying to influence uh, people's expectations may not be the secret to economic success after all. Maybe we need to go past this idea of, hey, random good luck or old-fashioned good luck and start doing some good old-fashioned monetary stuff. And that's really, that's, that's kind of where we're getting with this QE thing. And I think it's been going long enough. When you look back at Japan in particular, what you see is nothing but one failure after another. And I think a lot of people are starting to get the sense that this QE stuff really is nonsense. And is that what the Federal Reserve concluded at the beginning of this year? I'm going to pull up a quote for everyone. It's too long for me to read, but it's so important. 
that I want our YouTube audience to be reading this as you're talking. Jeff, what is this quote about and what does it have to do with Japan's experience? Well, it's, you know, let me point out first, it's not just this one quote. We're not just cherry picking here. We're not just saying, hey, the Federal Reserve said this one time. This is, if you actually read most of the academic literature about QE, going back to the early 2000s of Japanese experience, what they'll say is, yeah, this stuff doesn't really work. At least at the most charitable, they'll say it doesn't work the way we think it works. In fact, we don't really know how it works. We just kind of hope that it does. And this, the quote we're showing you here was from February, January of this year, January of 2020. This was written by the Federal Reserve in January 2020 saying that these large-scale asset purchases in Japan, while there's a high degree of uncertainty regarding their effectiveness, Think about what that means, a high degree of uncertainty after two decades of quantitative easing. And when you put that together with its actual track record and even its academic track record, the term high degree of uncertainty, what that actually means is, hey, this stuff doesn't work and it hasn't in the past, but just maybe it could work in the future. That's what high degree of uncertainty says. That's the most terrible way the Federal Reserve in January of this year could put these QE and asset purchases. Hey, it hasn't worked so far, but maybe it could. That's really what we're supposed to be basing this, this idea that everything's going to be good and inflationary next year. We're supposed to be basing it on high degree of uncertainty. And again, that's the most charitable case. We look at any number of other uh, academic studies and articles, it gets even worse as the central bankers themselves have to admit. This is a sensational pair of uh, paragraphs here. And my favorite part, you haven't even bolded, and it has to do with the inflation targeting. Here's my favorite part. It's in the second paragraph, the very first sentence there. It's, uh, thus, in thinking about whether to raise the inflation target to a certain level, central banks need to take into account whether they are able to raise inflation to a new target level. That's, you know, that's the funny thing is that that is a really important sentence, as, as you pointed out, Emil. But what they're actually saying there, because remember, this is a Federal Reserve look back at Jap the Japanese QE experience. What they're saying in reality is, you know, we believe the Fed can raise the inflation mm. target. We don't believe the Japanese can, <laughs> even right. though we use exactly the same tools and we do the same things usually seven years. We don't think the Japanese can do it, but we can do it fine. They don't take their own words for it. I mean, high degree of uncertainty. I mean, ugh, it just boggles the mind. And of course, the public, politicians, even nobody knows this stuff. It's not like this is common knowledge. But if you go back through, like, don't take my word for it. Go back through all the literature. And what you'll see is central bankers trying really, really hard to, to move the goalpost to just make it seem like this QE stuff even works a little bit. And really, the best best they can come up with High degree of uncertainty. And the thing is, it's this inflation targeting isn't the first monetary tool that they have seen Japan struggle with and then they themselves have struggled with, right? To your point. So QE first in Japan, they said, well, it would work if we did it. They did it. It didn't work. And now here we are again. Yeah, inflation targeting, if they knew what they were doing, it would work, but they don't. So, but we'll take care of it. Yeah, a couple months later, <laughs> they're right back in the Japanese doing it all over again, right? I mean, that's, it's the combination of inflation target plus massive QE. That's what Japan did in 2013. And take a look at what the Japanese said about their own, their own assessment of their uh, effectiveness. Jeff, later in the article, you talked about uh, how the economy grew, how real private consumption grew, real domestic growth grew during QE and QQE. Can you summarize that for us and with the expectation is that that's likely what's going to happen in Europe and the United States and wherever else a QQE is attempted? The sum is that it doesn't work. <laughs> but no, QQE itself has underperformed even the prior QEs. Uh, when you look at both private consumption as well as GDP, it's, it's been atrociously, I mean, not even close. Even it, when, when I when I did the the uh, put together those numbers, I didn't even include the recessions in them, just to be to, to again to present to you the most charitable argument in favor of these things. 
And even on the upswings, even on the economic upturns, they barely, the Japanese economy barely manages 2% growth. And then since, you know, QQE, it's not even that. It's not even half of that. And it's, okay, so even on its own terms, QQE didn't even improve on QE, which didn't work. So, you know. I'm going to quote you as a way to conclude this article, but let me know if there are any other thoughts that you want to share with the audience. Quote, in short, there is absolutely nothing legitimate upon which to base the Fed's late 2020 more optimistic inflationary forecasts. Nothing. It's all smoke and mirrors, a tired puppet show increasingly lacking the slightest originality. The entire monetary toolkit consists of uncritical stories written up in Bloomberg and for CNBC. That's all it ever was. Yeah, the, I think the only thing I would add is I want to point out that, you know, in that article I included a Bank of Japan study from 2017 that looked like a QQE relatively closer to, you know, that time period. And again, <laughs> this is a Bank of Japan study. And what they conclude is in terms of inflation, it didn't, it didn't do anything. In fact, the, 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 their specific time period to look at was 2015, the fiscal year 2015. And they said when QQE was in QQE plus inflation target, this Abinomic stuff was first unveiled in 2013, that they expected about 2% inflation in 2015, 1.9%. Just to be charitable, they gave it 1.9%. And inflation in 2015 was zero. So they missed it by 100%. <laughs> Just a bit outside. And this is two years, they gave it enough time to, to ramp itself up. And two years later, you know, regardless of the economic statistics, on judging it by inflation alone, it missed it entirely. And it didn't get any better ever since 2017. Inflation rose a little bit in 2017 and 2018, consistent with what we call inflation number three around here. And of course, as soon as Euro dollar number four showed up in 2018, guess what happened to Japanese inflation? The same thing that always happens. And that's really the point to wrap this thing up, going back to our first segment. For central bankers, this massive global monetary system doesn't factor. They don't care about the Euro dollar system, even though in 1988, it was already a third or more bigger than the domestic monetary system. And that is just including the traditional deficit. We haven't got to derivatives and some of the more fuzzy stuff that caused Morgan Guarantee to stop measuring the Euro dollar system. We don't even factor that stuff. So we have this massive monetary system that no central bank actually factors. And they keep doing these QE without factoring those massive monetary factors. And guess what they keep finding? That those that it's either good luck or bad luck. And since, <laughs> since this monetary system broke down in August 2007, central banks all around the world, despite bigger QEs and inflation targets, have had a run of bad luck. And that's what we're supposed to believe is changing. Sorry, no wonder markets aren't buying it. No, I'm responsible. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm reminded of the fact that this is that study you mentioned by Japan is at least the second one that I know of because they also wrote one about QE and they said it didn't work. And now they're writing about QQE and inflation targeting and how that didn't work, which reminds me then of your quote here of the lacking of originality, because now we're hearing word out of Europe that the European Central Bank is considering doing a, uh, a whole review, which will likely lead to some of the exact same policies that the Fed has implemented that Japan has already shown that it's not working. And I think the Bank of England is preparing to do negative interest rates as well. Jeff, has the Bank of Japan come out with a study on negative interest rate policy and how it hasn't worked? Yes. I mean, there's several. <laughs> there's, if there's a monetary policy that the Japanese pioneered, there's several studies. And it's funny because you point the, the study I think you're thinking of was from 2006, mm -hmm. maybe 2005. The mm -hmm. first QE, that's, that's and the what one. they said is they examined all the theoretical channels and said, okay, portfolio rebalancing, nah, that didn't work. Signaling, nah, that didn't work either. Low interest rates, well, maybe that worked. But as we know, low interest rates are not the function of monetary policy. They're the function of the bank, the bond market saying, you guys are a bunch of morons. You have no idea what you're doing. And as you're pointing out, this stuff is it's proliferating everywhere. We're following Japan yeah, the, the Europeans just announced, hey, we're going to undertake a grand strategy review. Why? Because it works so well in the U.S.? No, they have no idea what else to do because to them, this is all just bad luck. When in fact, there's this massive monetary system out here. Massive. It's been, you know, you just look backwards and it was massive 40 years ago. 
And nah, it just it just doesn't factor in anything these people do. Yet we're supposed to take their word for some of these very big things that are going on. You know, inflation means growth, recovery, the economy getting out of its huge hole, these kinds of things, even though we haven't recovered from the last one yet. But we're supposed to believe QE and inflation targets are the answer. Great stuff, Jeff. I think we ran long on today's show, but I, I know the audience is going to enjoy it. So I uh, want to wish you a good weekend, and I'll uh, talk to you again next weekend. Next All right, week. Emil, take care. You left me. You didn't leave me speechless this time. I want to tell the audience, I have not been drinking uh, before the show, although I'm going to. I'm stumbling all over my words. So I'll, uh, I'll talk to you next, uh, next week, Jeff. Okay, Emil, take care.